going? I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about the Uvalde police stood down. This is in Texas. Hunter's laptop and Ashley's diary. And who runs America under Biden? And a little bit more about my upcoming summit. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. The ongoing horrific uh, outcome of the school shooting that occurred in Texas a couple of weeks ago, Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. More information has emerged about the police conduct that day, the conduct, the carrying out of their duties by the local police on duty there. And I want to say, I'm going to play a clip and show you an image in just a moment. I want to say first, I am deeply grateful for every single American who decides to serve our country in the military, who stands up and takes risk for America. I'm grateful for police officers, grateful for firefighters, people who put their life on the line so all of us can feel safe. I am normally reticent about criticizing police officers, and I think for the most part, they do the best they can with the highest morals and principles possible. I deeply support America's police. I am grateful for them. I support them. However, in this particular case, as you likely know, in the Uvalde, in the Uvalde Texas shooting at Robb Elementary, 19 students lost their lives, 19 precious babies. I showed their pictures a few weeks ago. I mean, sweet young children with the whole lives ahead of them lost their lives. And there was, there has been, of course, inquiry about what occurred that day. How could that incident have gone on for so long? What happened to security? The security at that school had actually had just two weeks prior to this incident had had their active shooter training. It's like, so it's mind-blowing how poorly it was handled. But I do want to play for you a clip. Um, this is a uh, uh, Evalde commander, um, puts, and I want you to hear the clip of uh, how, what the assessment is of the conduct. This is uh, clip one, Mr. Joe, uh, clip one of the uh, assessing the conduct of the police officers at Evalde that day. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. The officers had weapons, the children had none. The officers had body armor, the children had none. The officers had training, the subject had none. One error, 
14 minutes and 8 seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. And while they waited, the on-sea commander waited for a radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. The reason I want to play that, because I don't, I think it's easy for a civilian such as myself, never serve as a police officer, to sound unfairly critical. But the person you heard making that assessment, reading that statement, uh, is Texas Department of Public Safety Director Steve McGraw. And this was at a House subcommittee in Washington, D.C., uh, telling what he um, observed. Or that, no, I'm sorry, he, that wasn't, that was he speaking locally here in Texas, the Texas Department of Public Safety Director Steve McGraw. The reason I wanted to play that is I do understand how extremely frightening it must have been for police officers to actually be in the middle of a school shooting. I'm going to guess almost every officer in America who works guarding a school always thinks, well, it's really bad, but these are terrible things that have happened, Columbine, other places, but it won't happen here. But the fact is, when you take that job and you commit to protect those children, you simply have to take the risk that you may lose your life. It's, it's part of your job. It's like signing up in the military and recognizing you're being shipped off to a fight in foreign war. You may lose your life. Those officers, and I want to tell you one other fact about this, because the film is coming out from inside the school now. I'm going to show you an image in a moment inside the school. But what appears to be the case, the new timeline, um, is that the, re the officers had all the resources they needed to deal with the shooter. They stood down. And by the way, the picture I'm about to show you um, is inside the school, uh, inside Robb Elementary School, Uvalde, Texas. Heavily armed police were in the building with at least one ballistic shield only 19 minutes after the school shooter entered the building. So some police officers inside, heavily armed police, within 19 minutes after the school shooter entered the building, and yet with a new timeline, they are now saying that they stood down for an additional 58 minutes, five, eight. They can hear the shots in this classroom. Here's the picture. This is the other image I wanted to share with you, the picture inside. So you see the officer in the left, he has uh, a, um, he's got a rifle. A, uh, I'm not, I don't want to say everything's an AR-15. He has a big gun. He's there to defend the kids. The officer in the right, what he's holding out is a shield that stops bullets. These two people are inside the building and let it go on and didn't move forward toward the classroom for 58 minutes, resulting, as we now know, in the loss of uh, the lives of those precious children, uh, you know, just families. You, you can hardly even find words adequate to, I mean, you express condolences, you express support. And I want to say again that this situation, people on the left, as they have always wanted to do, just like every leftist leader since time began, their answer always is take away the guns from the, from the innocent people. De disarm the population. Render the population helpless. This is the goal of the left, always has been. Talk right now in Washington, D.C. that the U.S. House, Democrat controlled barely, is talking about legislation that may actually just make sales of almost all ammunition either virtually impossible because of a high tax like, I don't even know, $1,000 a bullet, whatever it is, make it impossibly expensive or simply outlaw it. 
The left always goes to that. The responsive people on the conservative side who understand the vital importance of the Second Amendment to the Constitution, they understand we must have a firmly in place, firmly respected Second Amendment. The right of individual citizens to bear, to bear arms must be upheld. We have a moral obligation to outline the ways we deal with these kinds of things. We prevent them in the future that do not in, in any degree involve taking away weapons from innocent people. I know the uh, John Cornyn, our U.S. Senator from Texas, got behind. The, he was actually leading the charge in the U.S. Senate for the Republicans to get on, poor, on board with a Democrat majority who would happily disarm America. I, uh, Cornyn got hugely booed. We covered a couple of days ago. Cornyn got booed heavily at the Texas GOP convention. I mean, couldn't talk over the crowd, literally couldn't talk over the booing, and, and he richly deserved it. And he knows Texas doesn't want this, but he's gotten the message now. And there's a lot of talk now about the bill they may come up with will not have the red flag law provision, which we went over in detail, I think, on Monday. The red flag law, which basically would, it has the potential for mischief and abuse and the use of a red flag law for people who just want to retaliate against an enemy, an old boyfriend, ex-wife, whatever it is, potential for abuse to deprive the American and American citizen of their right to bear arms is too great, too, just too cannot have this, cannot do this. So therefore, uh, the red flag law thing does not appear to be going through, but understand conservatives have to be really willing to do the right things, which in the case of public schools is to protect them Fortress them as you do banks, jewelry stores, the U.S. Congress, the Supreme Court. We understand precious things must be guarded with serious weapons. Uh, Alan West was on the show last Thursday, I think it was, uh, and he was talking about what about all the retired military people who would love to take jobs guarding the schools, have armed guards at schools. People, I wish it wasn't necessary. I wish America were not in such a state of moral decline that we're even worried about it. But the fact is we are worried about it. We do need to have America's uh, kids protected, and we have to do things at the schools that allow the Second Amendment to remain intact, remain intact and have students protected from lunatics who might shoot up the school. And we have to vigorously, seriously investigate the same litany of questions I went through the day after the shooting in Evalde. I went through, you know, the questions that should be asked, such as how did that guy who had a part-time job waiting tables at McDonald's or whatever fast food place it was, how did he acquire the money to own a $70,000 pickup truck? How did he acquire the money to own the weaponry he had, the ammunition he had? He had uh, himself body armor. Where did he get that money? It was tallied a minimum of $100,000 worth of stuff he has from a kid who lives with a grandmother and has no visible means of economic support. Many, many, many serious questions must be asked, and we need trusted law enforcement to dig in and understand all the forces around him, including who may have encouraged him, who may have provided him information. What is it all that went on to get to as far as we can down to the root causes? And we must decide that we're going to protect our schools. Well, that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. Okay, so I, yesterday on the show, I'm going to go to the topic. Well, I'll tell you what I had planned for today. I had planned for today to do a really, really deep dive into Hunter Biden's laptop and Ashley Biden's diary, 
Both of those things are available online. And if you go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, I put the links up. If you're on our homepage, americacanwetalk.org, under shows, drop down list of links, you can link to what I'm describing to you. There's a website called Marco Polo, just like the explorer, marcopolousa.org. On that website, you can, you can look at many things, including the entire contents of Hunter Biden's laptop have now been uploaded there. You can read Hunter Biden's laptop. You can see the videos that were on Hunter Biden's laptop, and you can read Ashley Biden's diary. Those things I want to urge you to do, to look at for yourself. I was going to dedicate uh, much of the show to that today, but I want to first um, finish up something I wanted to finish from yesterday. I talked very briefly, our, our interview yesterday with the incredible Douglas Frank went a little bit long, and I did not get to some points I want to make that I think are really vital. There's much ado made out of someone named Peggy Noonan, who was a previous Reagan administration speechwriter, and she used to write brilliant columns, and she is just, I mean, she's been made truly deranged with Trump derangement syndrome, and so she just writes these completely ridiculous columns now. Uh, you know, she can't, the evidence of election fraud is overwhelming. She can't see it. I mean, it's just a, it is just a, a falling apart of someone who used to be pretty darn impressive. But the reason that I want to, what I want to go back to today has to do with refuting some of the specific points that she and Ann Coulter and other deranged former Republicans make regarding Donald Trump, regarding what occurred in the 2020 election, and regarding what should occur going forward. The people who continue to raise the issue of the 2020 elections and the stolen election are not doing so because they are Trump sycophants. This is what the left wants you to believe. Anybody, anybody still talking about the 2020 election, these are Trump sycophants. These are lunatics who think that the only possible president should be Donald Trump. This is what they try to characterize people who are pushing the investigation and the opening to the public, the making of the transparency to the public of what occurs in our election process. They try to attribute it to people being Trump sycophants. I want to make very clear, I am no Trump sycophant. I didn't support him in the primary I support, when he ran in 2016. Uh, my husband and I happen to support Ted Cruz. You know, he's from Texas. We know his family. We know his dad really well. And when we supported Ted Cruz... And as the election went on, the process went on, the primary went on, you know, eventually, as you all know, um, Ted Cruz dropped out and Donald Trump was a clear Republican nominee. And I will say that what I have loved about Trump and touted about Trump and always will tout about Trump are several things. Number one, he stopped the plan Marxist takeover of America as fully described fully described by Patrick Byrne on his Deep Capture website, deepcaptureblog.com or whatever it is, where he talks about having actually worked in the, and he was, he is a non-political guy. He doesn't, he didn't vote for, he doesn't vote for Republicans or Democrats. So he's non-political, but as an expert, he's a huge numbers genius guy. He worked with the Obama administration toward the end of Obama's term in 2016, Obama and Biden, you know, president and vice president, and Byrne was in there working with Obama, who was 
at that time asking Byrne to set up Hillary Clinton. She was the, you know, everyone assumed at that point she was going to be the next president. She was, you know, predicted by every every outlet um, except a few conservative ones who actually look at real numbers. But she was uh, predicted to be the winner in 2016. And, and Obama was working to set up Hillary. Obama hired Byrne to, uh, I shouldn't say hired, I don't know if he paid him. Obama had Byrne set up Hillary Clinton and essentially tell her that he, Byrne, was going to show up with a bunch of cash and the cash was to be a bribe from some foreign country. So Hillary would think she's getting money from, I don't know, country of Turkey, country of Egypt, you know, one of those countries we have to work with. And and so she, Hillary, thought she was going to be receiving a bribe from a foreign country when all along Obama was setting it up to and, and explaining to Byrne and team that the point was he wanted Hillary Clinton to be under his control. Because once Hillary was elected, he, Obama, could go to Hillary and say, hey, by the way, I know about the bribe you took from this. I know about this bribe. You know, you're going to do exactly as I say. He wanted to own Hillary Clinton's decision-making. Obama did, so he set this whole thing up with Byrne. Byrne's carrying it out, and then right before the actual delivery of money, uh, Obama pulled Byrne back, and he didn't do it. But in the course of those conversations, as Byrne describes on his Deep Capture blog, Obama's point was, you're going to have, you know, it's essentially 24 years of Marxist rule. You have eight years of Obama, and Obama thought then eight years of Hillary, and then after that, eight years of Michelle Obama. Three times eight, 24 years of Marxist rule. This was the idea Obama had. Obama was a Marxist and is a Marxist, and that's what he was bringing to America. And so getting back around to why so many people support Trump. Number one, he became a boulder in the road in the socialist agenda to take down America. That's number one, because nobody on the left believed that he would be elected. Number two, what Trump did during his campaign in 2015 and 2016 was essentially to reinvigorate the American people with the idea that America is extraordinary, great, noble, and good. He talked about the border at a time when no one was talking about the border. The left wasn't going to talk about it because they were busy destroying it. He raised the issue, why don't we have an enforceable southern border? Why do we allow so many people to come in across the border and, and just you know, make their way into America and disappear in the heartland somewhere? We have millions and millions, conservative estimates, 15 million illegal aliens in America. Many reasonable efforts are more in the range of you know, something like 20, 25, even 30 million. And people say by the end of the of Biden administration, we'll be getting close to 50 million illegal immigrants in America. Trump called attention to the fact that we were essentially surrendering our sovereignty during his campaign. He brought attention to that fact. And he got people thinking about, yeah, why does the left never want to enforce the border? Why do they let the border go? So you had Trump reinstating, reinvigorating the idea of American sovereignty, the importance of a border, reinstating, openly saying it was one of the best moments of the Trump presidency when he spoke at his State of the Union, looked right at Bernie Sanders and said, America will never be a socialist country. It was a stand on your feet, clap and cheer, not just in the House and Senate, but in households around America, because what Trump had helped America see is that America was being led down the path to become a Marxist socialist nation 
under Obama, certainly under what Bernie Sanders would do if he only had the power. And Trump reinvigorated love of freedom, love of capitalism, love of free markets. He worked in the deals he made and the foreign policy deals he made to bring back to America that sense of jobs, full employment, manufacturing, bring back American strength. He reasserted America's strength and independence. He pulled away from what Obama was trying to effectuate, which was the push toward globalism, pushing America into more and more submission as an irrelevant, uh, one among many nations, nothing special about America. That was a message from Obama early on, a message from Obama early on when he talked about, yeah, of course, we think oh, Americans, we're exceptional. The Greek thinks, Greeks think they're exceptional. Obama had no respect for the idea of America's unique and extraordinary greatness. And that greatness is due to the ideas of the founding, and those ideas equally bless everyone of every race, ethnicity, national origin, and skin color. It's the ideas of America that are great and unique. And this is one of the many, another reason people really, really respect Trump, because they began to see that Trump was getting us back on the road of freedom. They also, as Trump exposed the swamp in Washington, the, the bureaucratic swamp that had that what the bureaucracies in Washington have become, the, these long-term uh, you know, senior officials, senior bureaucrats and levels down below them that really run the country, they ignore the president, they ignore the White House, they ignore the administration, they ignore Congress, they just simply think they're running the country and they kind of are. Trump exposed so much of that, and people were so impressed with and grateful for the fact that he was willing to help the American people understand how deeply America had become a swamp, that we no longer really had representative government, even when we thought we did. So respect for Trump grew in the four years he was a president, 2016 to 2020, and grew more as more people recognized how hysterically determined the leftists were in this country to take him down, to take him out, to remove him. This was the point of the um, both impeachment efforts, utterly unjustified, the entire point of the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, which the high levels of the DOJ, FBI, CIA all knew was a hoax. They knew from the start was a hoax. They, the Mueller investigation was entirely done to cover for what they knew Hillary had done, her Hillary campaign, her uh, Hillary for president campaign, her functioning with Perkins Coie and Fusion GPS, and her cooking up of the fraudulent lie that there was Trump-Russia collusion. The entire Mueller investigation was to cover that. So I'm getting around to saying the, the appreciation of the American people grew for what Trump was willing to do, to be strong, to speak up, to stand up. His policies on many, many issues were about restoring freedom. And, and it, he, he just, he gained the respect of so many people who weren't particularly excited about his presidency to start with. This is why people got, are so, so uh, determined, so uh, relentless about exposing election fraud, because people who love Trump's ideas, his agenda, his pro-America message, his pro-freedom message, his pro-sovereignty, his anti-globalist message, those are the people who wanted Trump reelected, and he got reelected by a landslide. And this is why these people will not stop talking about election fraud. They will not stop. They will not stand down. And that is because they know what Trump did for America. 
So back to the people who are like Peggy Noonan and others who are just having a meltdown um, over of just how can these people be so silly and still believe in election fraud. The people talking about election fraud are not doing it because they're personally sycophantishly infatuated with Donald Trump. It's because they like his restoration of America and they see exactly what the left is all about and exactly how determined they are to take down this country through the Marxist policies, the the Marxist socialist policies and tyrannical policies coming out of the Biden administration. That is why there's such a push and that is why people are so determined to say that they're not going to let this... um, this voter fraud, just, you know, go, just forget about it, sweep it under the rug, we'll do better next time. Any politician who tells you, well, you know, this time we'll get them. Yeah, this time we got a red wave coming. Have no idea how hard the left is going to fight to make sure that the American people do not get to select the majority in the House, the majority in the Senate, or the White House come 2024. The left, who's determined to take power in this country, have no at no willingness, no way they're going to allow the American people to actually choose their government. So back to what I want to talk about today, about Hunter's laptop and Ashley's diary. I'm going to get to that now, but I wanted to finish that point. It's really important to understand. I have no idea what Peggy Noonan really understands. I think I do think she's a bit deranged. No idea what she understands. But she doesn't understand why people stand for Trump. And the reason is exactly what I just said. I'm going to quickly interject for our radio listeners. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Can We Talk? And you can listen to this show on my website at any time, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org. That's the best place to to, uh, see this show. You can see it and hear it. Uh, it's, it's also on Facebook. It's also on Twitter and up later and Rumble and every other conceivable um, modern social media platform. But for radio listeners, you will go off to a break at the bottom of the hour. I'll be right here talking to you. So don't go away. Come right back after your break. At the close of the show, you also, I think your, uh, your time is cut off about three minutes before the top of the hour. Please know if I don't get a chance to say it then, I thank you for listening on Brightian Radio. I thank Brightian Radio for carrying this show carrying this show, and I urge you to go to our website to learn more. Again, americacanwetalk.org. Okay, now as I can tell you, what I want to do today in this Wednesday show, I want to run through Hunter Biden's laptop and Ashley's diary, Ashley Biden's diary. So I sat down to prepare this. I began, I went to the website, I told you, marcopolousa.org. You can read a ton of stuff there, including his whole laptop. So I thought what I might do is give you a little bit of Ashley Biden's diary and a little bit of Hunter Biden's laptop. And I I may in the future get into some things on his laptop, but I want to start with Ashley Biden. First of all, Ashley Biden left her diary with these most extraordinarily personal, excruciatingly personal uh, and very, very, very lengthy entries they have made it uh, readable on this website I mentioned. You can read the whole thing. Uh, I did not print it out, but it would be 119 pages if I were to print it out. They made it whole thing. You can print it out or read it online. And honestly, as I started reading it today, I I feel like I'm, I've just invaded. I mean, it, you are invading someone's privacy. I mean, she wrote her diary, and these are most personal. And, and I mean, you think if it was your daughter or your sister or your friend anyone you love, you would feel protective of them because it it is so personal. And so, I mean, this is a girl, a young woman, deeply, deeply, 
deeply troubled, deeply troubled, fully aware. She had major, major problem with alcohol, major problem with drug addiction, been in, in and out of rehab. Those problems bad enough, major problems. She describes herself in terms she has apparently uh, suffered through or perceived herself to be something of an addict related to sex. She writes about ex just, just embarrassing things. That's, wh that's why I'm not reading it to you but I want you to understand who she is. She also does talk about, in this diary, she does talk about her own confusion about herself, her own um, uh, life. And she says, she wrote at one page, I'm gonna to read to you a, a tiny excerpt. I've always been boy crazy, hypersexualized at a young age. I remember someone being sexualized with a family member, remember sex with friends at a young age, Showers with my dad, probably not appropriate. She's writing at a tender young age. She's writing as a young adult about herself at a, at a growing up, highly sexualized, taking showers with her dad. He who claims to be president of the United States of America. And she's writing in her diary in the context of writing about having been sexually abused sexualized by a family member and having her dad, Joe Biden, take showers with his daughter. And I'm telling you that before I get to Hunter Biden, I'm going to say one more thing about this diary. If you knew a family like this in your community, in your church, in your neighborhood, uh, anyone, you would see them as a family in crisis. You would see them as a deeply perverse family. You would see them as a family who should not be in charge, as they say, of the neighborhood lemonade stand. These are perverse, grotesque people. And she's writing about herself as a young woman. And, and just, I mean, I, I'm not probably ever going to read another thing on this show from her diary because it is it's so personal, it feels like invading privacy, except to say, I wanna plant this one thought. So she left, the reason the public has her diary is that she rented a, an apartment somewhere in Florida, and she was there for rehab, for one of her drug rehab sessions, and, or times, and she left the diary tucked under the mattress where she was staying, where she rented to stay. And either the owner of the place where she rented or the next uh, person who rented it found the diary. And there've been people talking about the idea, you know, they use the expression that people do a cry for help. Like sometimes when people attempt suicide, but they do it in a way that is, you know, not likely to be effective, that they manage to survive their attempted suicide. It's a cry for help. They're, they're trying to say, please, please, I'm, I'm really in trouble. Imagine writing the level of, I cannot describe to you the level of personal reveal of her deeply troubled mind and life and childhood describing growing up in the Biden household and leaving it by mistake, leaving it by mistake in a place where you're down there because you just went through rehab. So you'd think maybe she's not drinking or using drugs because she just came out of rehab. There is a question people ask. Was this a cry for help? Did she leave it to be found? Did she leave it because, you know, she half thought, you know, my father's running for president. It's just grotesque. He's a grotesque person. Anyway, um, there have now been um, attacks on the woman who found the diary. But I just want to say, I, I don't, 
everyone has a family, and in every family, if you go far enough, extended family and cousins and, you know, eighth cousin once removed, whatever it is, you know, you're going to find some people that are, you know, that have problems. No family is perfect. And you want to love your neighbors yourself. You want to love your friends. You want to love your family. You want to help your family. But to have her emerge from this household, she is the one child of actually Jill and Joe. She's their child. In this, and she makes reference to hearing her parents um, engage in uh, marital intimacy. Um, so she's in this diary. And she's describing being involved with someone who's apparently a married man. This is a deeply troubled young woman a deeply troubled young woman. And she's pointing in significant part to her own family and her life growing up with her parents, Joe and Jill Biden, as, as being the cause of her, as being who her parents were in the household. She was living highly sexualized. So um, the reason I want to mention this is, um, there, so then there's the Hunter Biden laptop too. So on the, and the Hunter Biden laptop, again, a question I mean, how many people leave a freaking laptop? I mean, your life is on your laptop. I often have thought if I got to the airport to go anywhere, I'd forgotten my laptop, I would not get on the plane. I mean, everyone, you hold on to your laptop because it's got everything you do. Your life, your emails, your everything you do is on your computer. So he drops off a laptop, Hunter Biden. Now he may have been drugged out. He was many times drugged out leaves a laptop at a repair shop and forgets about it for months until the owner, and who's now saying, hey, you know, you, at some point you don't claim your laptop, it becomes ours. He figures out who it, what, who's it belongs to, how significant the information is in that laptop, and he turns it over, turns it in. But is that another cry for help? This is Hunter Biden going, man, my life is a mess. So anyway, on the Hunter Biden laptop, there are many things that are truly, truly relevant to America, to the governance of America. They involve Hunter Biden's escapades um, in his foreign dealings and his, you know, 10% for dad, a cut for dad, his whole, you know, getting involved, getting on the board of Burisma in Ukraine with absolutely no life experience or education whatsoever to allow him to contribute an iota of value. And yet he's paid tens of thousands of dollars a month to sit in this board, obviously, this is back in the time when Joe is vice president to Obama. And so the laptop is full of emails, full of emails that make you understand, help you understand, in case you didn't, how profoundly corrupt the Biden family is. This is Ashley, deeply troubled, sexualized childhood, and then Hunter, who is a, I mean, you know, the, the, we're gonna, I'm going to dive into those. I probably will feature some of those. But getting ready for today's show, I did tap on the one link under Hunter Biden's laptop. It says videos. And I honestly, I clicked on one. I mean, you can't even tell what's going to be until you open it. And realized in under five seconds and turned it back off, this guy, Hunter Biden, when you see names, you see labels about him like, you know, perverse, a uh, little bit confused. I don't know what words there would be in there that might the media might dare cover. This is a guy just grotesquely, grotesquely perverse, sexualized, engaging in every imaginable perversion. I mean, I can't even, I can't even be undescribed. All I can tell you is I'd never play it on my show. I couldn't even watch it. I felt nauseous 
after just having read Ashley Biden, you, you mean, on the one hand, you kind of want to help her and, and embrace her and hug her and say, you know, pull your life together. You can do this. And then the other hand, you see Hunter Biden, who's in, who's immersion in, in, sexu in sensualism and sexuality is so sick, so extreme, and drug use. I, I mean, this, the idea, this is our first family. As I say, you wouldn't put them in charge of the neighborhood lemons, lemonade stand if you knew who they were. I'm probably going to come back to the Hunter Biden uh, laptop more with emails that relate to, you know, the actual perversion of and uh, corruption of his father, Ukraine, Russia, you know, Chinese Communist Party, all the people that Bidens have done deals with over the years that many people are pointing out may explain a lot of the failures of the Biden administration. But, um, I want to do one last thing today, uh, two last things today. Um, and one is, um, I want to, um, I, I have this segment called Who Runs America Under Biden? Who Runs America Under Biden? When you realize, let me remind you one more time about Biden. If you don't know this fact, you can look it up yourself. Joe Biden went from being a city council member in Delaware, which is, you know, a local race. He did manage to win a local race. He was city council member in some place in Delaware, and he went from that seat to a member of the United States Senate. No, what is commonly the stair-stepping city council, and then maybe mayor, or then or state rep, and state senator. Uh, none of that, you know, and maybe then governor, and maybe U.S. congressman. He went from city council to a member of the United States Senate because of the corruption of an organization called the Council for a Livable World. Russian communist-funded Council for a Livable World approached him, Biden, when he's a city council member, and said, hey, you want to be a United States senator? We can make it happen. We have millions at our disposal. We'll run your campaign. We'll buy the billboards. We'll buy the airtime. We'll do everything. You just have to be committed to us. And what he had to commit to in order to get Council for Livable World backing was essentially the idea he had to commit that he, Biden, was going to be sure he was supporting the Russians' right to continue to develop nuclear weapons at the same time to fight America's ability, to limit America's ability to have similar weapons. This is what he committed to. This is how he got to the Senate. And this guy is now running our foreign policy. So you might not be surprised when I tell you the kind of people he has appointed uh, and who are running his, um, his um, administration, involved in serious, serious, high-level things in his administration. There are a few people I want to uh, mention to you. Um, one is um, that there is a... Um, a woman um, who is, uh, she's got a new position now um, in the um, in the State Department. Uh, her name is Desiree Cormier-Smith. Desiree Cormier-Smith. And she is now, well, I actually have a brief clip by her. Uh, this is someone who is now working for the State Department in a new position, an envoy uh, to speak up about racism internationally. So this is Desiree Cormier-Smith. Hello, I'm Desiree Cormier-Smith, the State Department's first ever Special Representative for Racial Equity and Justice. Inequity, racism, and xenophobia are threats to democracy and run contrary to the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Yet they remain a painful part of the lived experiences 
of many people around the world. They also rob societies of their strength, creativity, stability, and prosperity. Last year, President Biden announced a historic whole of government approach to advance racial equity and support for underserved communities. As we undertake this work at home, we are also centering it in our foreign policy. To enhance this effort, Secretary Blinken created the position that I am now honored to fill. In my new role, I will advance racial and ethnic equity across our foreign affairs work. My priority will be to integrate into our policymaking the voices of marginalized racial and ethnic communities themselves, including indigenous communities, who for far too long have been excluded from the decisions that impact them. I am honored to serve alongside my State Department colleagues and our partners and allies to create a more just world where all people are valued and included. A world in which no one is prevented from living up to their full potential simply because of their race or ethnicity. I wanted to play that before I tell you more about her. So this is the left's obsession, obsession with race and their, their notion that everything, every issue, whether it's climate change, foreign policy, tax policy, bo every border policy, every single issue you can name that shapes America's future. If you're a leftist, all you have to talk about is race and you bring race and allegations of racism and systemic racism, institutional racism into every discussion. And the, this is intentional. The left does this because then if you dislike or disagree with anything they stand for, anything they say, you are a racist because you won't agree with them. So I want to tell you a few things, this woman that you just listened to, you know, she sounds very reasonable as do many crazy leftists. They sound very reasonable. They sound like they're writing past wrongs. They sound like they really, really care. They're trying to be fair. She actually, I want to read you some quotes she has made. And I, the overarching point is she has made the point in the past that white diplomats, so she is, you know, broadly, in a bigoted, racist manner, painting a broad brush of white diplomats, one of which, you know, she's not because she's so proudly not white. White diplomats are too protective of America. White diplomats are too protective of America. And I want to dive in on this point. It ties back to who Biden is and who's running our country. Leftists, in their quest to take down America, to take down America, the free, the great, the extraordinary, the exceptional, have managed to, to use the word they love to use, conflate. They have managed to conflate the concepts of the idea of racism as equal to the idea of, um, let me say it the other way, they have managed to say, or sell the argument that because America happened historically to be white majority, and that's the founders were obviously white Americans, and the founding of America was mainly by white settlers who came uh, to fight against uh, religious discrimination. But they've managed to make the ideas of America in their discussion as racist. What she's conflating is ideas of America, because white people happen to form America, it's the ideas of America are racist. And so she's critical 
of diplomats because they're too protective of the idea of America. She cannot grasp that the ideas of America, or she refuses to grasp, that the ideas of America are what made everything about America that, that everyone wants made them great, made America great. She cannot grasp the idea that the ideas of the Declaration of Independence, the concept of we all are created equal, the rights from God to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as I always add, simply because we were born. That's what inalienable means, that you have rights that, that are part of you, that you're born with them, and the Declaration meant every single human being on the planet Earth is born with these. That's the point of the Declaration. So what she, she has in her past statements said, white diplomats are too protective of America. She doesn't get the idea of America, and she is bought into the whole leftist garbage that to defend America means defending white people, defending people who are racist, which is an idiotic and false concept. But because she's able to use all the happy talk you just heard, she gets hired in her new position as a special representative for racial equity and justice, which will be, understand, defined by her. Defined by her. She'll be the one that, and people in her position will be the one to say what constitutes equity and what constitutes justice. Because after all, she has a position. She's the State Department's first special representative for racial equity and justice. And she's springing off of describing her position instead of saying, I'm so grateful, blah, blah, blah. You know, she starts off on, I am going to fix past evils and wrongs. She's starting out with the message of the left that America is an inherently racist nation, systemically racist, institutionally racist, that the entire world is historically, systemically, and institutionally racist, that America has this, this job to do to get out there and impose their concepts of what constitutes equity, what constitutes justice. It is the most arrogant, judgmental, and ugly statement she made, accusing the rest of the world because that's, you know, State Department is supposed to be dealing with foreign policy, our allies, and even our, you know, our, our allies and friends, and maybe even our enemies, this interaction with our foreign allies. She's taking the position the State Department has got to have a special job uh, because all these allies of America, allies and friends, have to be scolded by her about what constitutes racial equity and racial justice, told what they're doing wrong, all premised off her uh, you know, her acceptance of everything the left says about America being racist. So she's going to trot out there and tell our allies and tell our friends what they're doing wrong, how they're racist, and she knows better, and she knows how to fix it. And this is how Biden and le anti-American leftists think. They do know better than everybody else. They do know better than our allies. They do know better than other countries, other people, other experts, because they are the ruling elite and they know best. So I find her presence in the State Department not shocking. It's actually, you know, it's actually completely predictable when you recognize how the Biden team and how the anti-American left works. Everything is about race. Everything is, is about accusing everybody else except yourself of racism. Everything, every issue must be looked at. Every policy, every country is looked at through the lens of racism. And she is there that, you know, to riding in to save the day and explain to everybody what, how things should be because, after all, she's superior and has a superior intellect to everybody else. 
This is what she's saying. She's bringing race into the job at her at the State Department. And as I say, State Department's job is to deal with other countries, to deal with our allies, to relate to them, to create relationships. So she's she's laying out the ground that America's smarter than the rest of the countries better than the rest of the countries, and they are the ones that are going to be uh, fixing everything. Just let her do it. And she's and she's had, I mean, I could read a bunch of other statements she's made. Um, she said um, she denigrated white American diplomats for being too protective of the United States. They didn't have the empathy uh, that other minorities had. Um, she was interviewed in, um, on a podcast called Black Diplomats, uh, where, by the way, she was serving, this should be a red flag, she Smith, her name again is Desiree Cormier Smith, was serving as a senior policy advisor for George Soros Open Society Foundations. So she's gotten that socialist, you know, racism is everywhere, breeding and training into her thinking from Soros, um, and was, um, yeah, okay. She previously worked as a foreign service officer um, and uh, was offended by her white co-workers who said um, they evinced an ownership mentality when it came to approving U.S. visas. Like she's critical of white co-workers because they are making decisions maybe she wouldn't make, so it's all about race, don't you know? Uh, she's, she's actually touting herself as a minority because she'll have a certain empathy that white foreign service officers lack which is the most, which is a racist thing to say. It's like, if because you're an African-American serving the Biden administration, you can accuse other people of racism. You can make racist accusations, and you're allowed to say that because, after all, you're above that kind of criticism. Um, anyway, I could go on and on about her, but these are the kind of people you get hired by the Biden administration. The other one I want to mention very briefly um, has the, um, the EPA nominee. Biden administration has an EPA nominee uh, he's not in the job yet. A Howard University environmental law professor named Carlton Waterhouse, and he's been nominated by the Biden team to be the assistant administrator of the EPA's Office of Land and Emergency Management. He's a truly far-left radical and supporter of what he calls climate reparations. Again, remember, I've talked about this before. When Klaus Schwab and the whole World Economic Forum type people um, are trying to push climate change, they they use climate change, the alleged rapid, you know, alleged just destruction of the world climate change, which isn't happening, to justify forced wealth redistribution. They, numerous of them have admitted this, that the climate change is a vehicle to force America into forced wealth redistribution around the world. Climate change is just the excuse. She's this guy now who wants to be an EP, he's been nominated for this position, believes in climate reparations, basically saying because America is prosperous and lives in a comfortable life uh, that we ought to just be sending money elsewhere. You know, the, other th the thing is, if you want to be honest and say, yeah, I actually stand for, um, I, I think America should just share more of our wealth. I think we should distribute more of our wealth to, for to uh, other countries because they're poorer because we should increase foreign aid, we should have new programs. You should make those arguments honestly. Make the arguments honestly. America needs to share their wealth more and higher and better with other countries. Do it honestly. These people use climate as an excuse, as a, and, and they do it because they know people are afraid to challenge it. People aren't sure enough of their facts on climate change. They go, well, I don't know, maybe I gotta, gotta uh, go along with this. I just, I, I, I want you to understand 
Things flow from the fact that the Biden administration is corrupt as it is. Things flow. Truth flows. I mean, when you are the Biden administration, you got there corruptly. You are a you are enabling the mar- ongoing Marxist takeover of America started under Obama. When you're doing all of that, the people you hire and they're going to be, you know, imposing policy in the case of the EPA, imposing policy on America, as well as the State Department evincing to the world, spewing to the world how we Americans, we agree we're the most terrible people ever. Uh, you know, that's the kind of people you you hire and that's the kind of problem you get. I'm almost out of time on this show. I'm hoping Joe here can text me and tell me how much time. We're in a little bit of a strange situation with our studio clock today. So text me how much time we have left. But I do want to say a couple of quick things um, that relate to um, uh, where we are right now. Um, Tomorrow on this show, Thursday, our special show, Sidney Powell had a conflict come up. She's going to come on again shortly, but she can't come on tomorrow. So in the meantime, um, we have uh, joining us tomorrow uh, on the show, a wonderful, entertaining, very, very funny comedian, Alex Klein. Alex Klein is the guy who, he was on Tucker Carlson over the weekend, I think, very recently. He's a guy who has brought a new wave of how to communicate, how to speak up at the city council meetings, county commissioner courts, uh, wherever you go to give testimony. You know, these good, dutiful, um, you know, patriots will show up at, city council, school board meetings and such, and they bring a piece of paper and they say, I would like to uh, object to the following six things. You have a pornographic book that says this, you have this, you have this. And, and so they make a factual argument. And the school board people, too many of them, and city council and county commission, all of them, they're yawning, they're looking around, they're looking, they're, they're not listening. They don't care what you're saying. They don't care. Too many elected officials don't care what you're saying. So Alex Klein got the idea, okay, why don't we make it funny? So he is making it funny by the way he shows up, the theatrics, the exp- I mean, he's wonderful. So he's joining us tomorrow talking about a new way for patriots to speak up, at least that he can do it very effectively, speaking up um, at the various meetings conservatives are going to, trying to stand up and speak up for America. So you got to love it. Alex Klein will get Sidney Powell another time soon, but she's not coming on tomorrow. Um, I also want to mention very quickly, mark your calendars, October 15th. October 15th is our annual summit, our third annual Women for Freedom Summit. I run out of time today, but next week I'll go over with you again. But mark your calendar, be in Dallas on October 15th for a fabulous, fabulous summit. I really hope you can join us there. You'll love it. Um, and I'm going to have to wait till next week, too, to tell you about the, my two sponsors I have for the show, H2Bev and My Pillow. In both cases, you go to H2Bev, which is H and then the numeral 2, the digit 2, BevBev.com or MyPillow.com. In both cases, go to those websites, place an order, and put in the promo code WG. WG is the promo code for my show, and I get a small little payment from each every time you order. They're great products. I'll tell you more about them next week. But I think for now, I'm out of time for today. I need to go to tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started today. Uh, we were, uh, fortunately, we were able to get rocking and rolling today. Um, and we started the day talking about the um, Uvalde police um, stood down. New video shows officers inside the school 19 minutes after the shooter entered and waiting 58 minutes to engage. Apparent reality, police valued officers' lives more than the children's. Has demonizing the police taken a toll on the caliber of those hired as police? Minimum police qualifications, 
selfless and brave willingness to run toward danger, wholehearted embrace of the motto to serve and protect, civil society clearly in jeopardy when police lack these qualities of character. On the deep dive of Hunter, uh, Hunter's laptop and Ashley's diary, contents of Hunter's laptop and Ashley's diary are deeply disturbing. This is a dysfunctional, hypersexualized, even depraved family. Biden family shouldn't be trusted to run anything, much less the United States of America. What must be said about a mainstream media that wouldn't cover the laptop or the diary? What must be said about big tech, social media, that wouldn't allow discussion of either? What must be said about 50, 5 intelligence officials who publicly, knowingly, and falsely called the laptop Russian disinformation? What should be done about the fraudulent election that installed this fraud as president? The moral rot of American government is broad and massive. Tear it all down and start over sounds more and more appropriate. And who runs America under Biden? Biden appointee for State Department thinks white diplomats are too protective of America. I meant to say no to this woman. Your job as a diplomat, beside representing America, is to be protective of America, to defend America, to speak up about its greatness, not to denigrate it. Biden appointee for EPA believes in the need for climate reparations, to which, as in all other reparations, there will be no end. Any start on reparations, there will be no end. No one can make a straight-faced argument that the American people voted for this nonsense. Elections have consequences. Stolen elections have catastrophic consequences. A stolen American election can destabilize the entire world. We, the people, must rise to save America. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America Can We Talk. Truth about America. Can you hear